guys who are not sure what I'm doing this for, it's so that we have it. Let's take our Bibles this morning. We're over in the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, title of the message this morning is Gifts, Gifts for Grace. It's kind of a redundancy, really, because the word gifts comes from the word grace in the original language. If you let your eye fall into the passage just a little bit, chapter 12, you let your eye fall down to verse 5. This is where we will be picking up our reading. It says in verse 5, So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given unto us. Whether prophecy, let us prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, and he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. These are verses that teach us a little bit about the body of Christ, which is, of course, the church. We are one with him in that he is the head, we are the members of his body. This is talking to a specific group of people, and that specific group of people is made up of Jews and Gentiles. You could take this and put it anywhere in the world, and you would have different kinds of people coming together, uh, some places more so than others. But anywhere you have a place where some people are of one background or heritage and others coming from a different heritage, there might be some difficulty in coming together. The language barrier has long been a problem, and even in our day now we're becoming more and more uh, eclectic out here in our world. It is a sad thing on many fronts because we're patriots and we're... You know, we're citizens and we love our country, but at the same time, it is for the church an opportunity to try to share Jesus with people. We got to share Jesus with a man who was a Muslim. His name was Muhammad. He's no longer a Muslim, though. And it wasn't me. I didn't get to lead him into Jesus, but I got to help him on his way. And uh, what ended up happening was is that this young man was standing with me and we were talking, and I began to realize his story was a little bit more interesting than just his name and found out that he had come up in a family of a man who was a Muslim and a woman who was not, and she brought him up in church, and Dad came back and said, we're going to be Muslim. So he got bit hard for a while and ultimately found himself drilling down into the Christian world. So when he found me, he said, you're a pastor, well, let's talk, you know. So we had some good conversations, and I pointed him to the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And that's a great book for him to pick up and, and, and feed on. What I'm trying to say is, is that we're getting into a variegated world. The church is made up of many nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues. And therefore, there are going to be many times we're not going to know exactly how to behave ourselves. In verse 5, as we see, he starts out by saying, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. That takes away a little bit of the fight that comes for these Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church because there's a sense of entitlement among the Jewish people. They've always been on top. They've always been uh, first in line and had the front row seats, as it were, with regard to Jehovah God. But once the church was born and Jesus reveals himself for being the Almighty, and he begins to reveal himself as being the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and as the Jewish people are trying to get their minds around the fact that God has become a man. The Messiah has literally manifested himself. He's the right arm of God. And when he's done that, this changed everything. They had a lot of learning to do then, right? They had to go back and really rethink their theology like Paul did on the road to Damascus. He gets smitten by Jesus, who art thou, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you persecuted. 
he's just blown away because he was the church, but it was Jesus that he was persecuting because we are members of his body. And so as you look at this passage, when he says we're members one of another, this is spoken to Jews and Gentiles, and that's why he follows it up by saying, having then gifts differing according to the grace of God that is given unto us, whether prophecy let us prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, he that exhorteth, and so forth. I want you to notice something about the verbiage here. There's a lot of italics words here. And those italic words you need to pull out sometimes to get the sense of what's really being said. And what he really is doing is he doesn't really begin to bring in any verbs at length. Most of these are nouns. And that's important because what he's actually saying in verse 6 is he's saying that this grace that is given to us, whether prophecy according to the proportion of faith, it's just the prophecy. He's not saying prophecy, whether prophecy, it's a noun, it's not a verb. He's saying a prophecy, whether prophecy according to the proportion of faith. You're supposed to do it according to the proportion of faith. And in verse 7, the same thing is true. Or ministry, it's not a verb, it's a noun. I know that's hard to get our minds around. We don't think like this. We don't parse like this, but it's important. Because what he's showing us is there's really two segments. You have the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews may be wanting to be the ones who are prophesying. They may be the ones who are teaching. They want to tell everybody what's up, okay? Because they're smarter than anybody, at least in their minds they are. He actually talks about that in chapter 2. He says, you fancy yourself a teacher, you know, an informer of babes and so forth. So they want to be the prophets, and then on the other hand, you've got the Gentiles. They don't know much, but they're excited. Can I set the books out? Can I clean the church? Can I do anything for you, Pastor? Can I shine your shoes? I had a man extra shine my shoes once. He was so excited about getting saved. Not only that, he hated the fact that my shoes were all scuffed up. So he, wanted to, he, was a, he was a military guy. He wanted to clean my shoes up. So he said, Can I, let me have your shoes. And he took my shoes and he shined them. What I'm saying is, is that when the Gentiles got involved, they didn't know anything. They had to learn everything. So they were going to be ministering. The Greek word is diakonia. We get the word deacon from it. But it's not about the office. It's about kicking up dust. It's about hastening to this and hastening to that. Say, what can I do? Back in the days when Billy Sunday was doing his thing and, you know, he was at the Salvation Army when he woke up from a drunken stupor hearing the music, goes in, gets saved. He was a professional baseball player. Gets fired up for God, leaves all that behind, starts preaching the gospel. But back then, what they would do is in those Salvation Armies, I came to find out, is that they take all these guys who were drunk on the street and they would take them and they would have them set books on all the chairs and set up the chairs, tear down the chairs and all that because they wanted to do something. My point is there's two nouns. There was prophecy, there was ministry. The ministry was not just what you think of when you think of ministry. I don't know what you think of. Ministry is hastening. Ministry is getting under. Ministry is kicking up the dust. It means to go fast. And so when he opens this up about gifts, he literally personalizes the message. He says, whether prophecy or whether ministry. He says, whether prophecy, he says this. He says, whether prophecy according to the proportion of faith. This word for proportion is only found here in the New Testament. In fact, it is a difficult word to translate. Because what happens is, is you've got to go all the way back to Plato to get an idea of what this word means. It literally is the word we get an English word from. You'll understand this word. It's the word analog. This, this is analogamai. That's what this is. That's the word Greek word. Analog. You know it in your day, especially most of you who are older, about your, your watches. Some of you all have an analog watch, and some of you have a digital watch. Some of you have a smart watch. 
But I'm just trying to show you that there is an interesting thing because proportion says one thing to us in English, but it doesn't say analog. What's that mean? You see, what he's actually saying, if you were to go back to Plato, and I, I, I don't want to bore you with all of the dynamics and the, and, the, and the ins and outs, but I want you to hear what Plato actually said about this word, proportion. Plato said, the fairest bond is that which is most, which most completely fuses and is fused into the things which are bound. You'll know what I mean by here in a minute. It's a mathematical term. He's a mathematician, Plato was. Not only was he a thinker and a sophist, but he also, uh, into sophistry, but he also was a, a mathematician. So he's talking about mathematics, and he says the fairest bond is that which is most, which most completely fuses and is fused into the things which are bound. And this is where he uses the word. And proportion is best adapted to affect such a fusion. <laughs> yeah, now you feel smarter, don't you? <laughs> what I want you to know is the, get a hold of the word bond. Okay, that's the word you want to take away. In his context, he's talking about bonding. And what he's saying in, in, in our passage here for you and for me is he says whether prophecy, it needs to be prophecy that is bound to the faith that has been delivered. It is analogia. So logia is the word. That's the word became flesh. The word of God. Logia. Logos. And so I want you to recognize he's telling them and instructing them even now in the practical exercise of our faith as members one of another. If you as a Jew in that setting are going to be the teacher, make sure you teach that which is bound to the scriptures and not what you want to say. That good? So he's saying you got a good thing here. You've got a foundation, but you're reckless with your foundation. Because your foundation is corrupted by the fact that you've all your lifetime been, well, discriminatory toward everybody that was Gentile. Craig was discriminatory against Gentiles, too. He used to call them reptiles. But that was when he was about four. Jews and reptiles. Now, it's not Jews and reptiles. It's Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles was anybody who wasn't Jewish. And these who are uh, Jewish are the ones who think that they can prophesy. Now, you say the word prophecy, and this is a, a, a little point to be had because we're only going to have a couple verses really dealing with the gifts, but I told you we would talk about them a little bit. So let me give you a little primer on gifts in the Bible. The Greek word is charis, and then there's charismatic. Charis is grace, and charisma uh, is the idea of uh, a gift. Charisma. That's why the charismatic movement is called such, because they believe in the gifts being amplified in our day. And may I just say they should be, just not in the way that they do. And I'll explain that. There are three types of gifts in the Bible. There are three types of gifts. There are sign gifts, there are serving gifts, and there are speaking gifts. Those are the three types of gifts that God pours out on His church. And they're variegated, because this is not the exhaustive list. They're mentioned here. You'll find some, I think it's Romans 14, and also in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, you'll find gifts. It's not an exhaustive catalog of the gifts, okay? But what I want you to take away here is sign gifts, serving gifts, and speaking gifts. This passage does not deal with any sign gifts. Sign gifts would be the speaking in foreign languages. People talk about speaking in tongues, what it really was in its first occurrence and its only legitimate expression. Speaking in tongues involves speaking in a foreign language. You do not know before you speak in it. So if you are a Jewish person on the day of Pentecost, you're seeing Jewish people all gathered. 
from all the world out there, non-Palestinian Jews, coming into Jerusalem. And as they come into Jerusalem for the feast at, of Pentecost, they're all there, and the Holy Spirit falls upon those that were up in the upper room, and many of those disciples came out preaching the gospel in foreign languages. They were speaking German, they were speaking French, they were speaking Arabic, they were speaking everything but, but Hebrew, okay, or Greek. They were speaking it all. And the reason we know that is because when you read chapter 2 of the book of Acts, you find out that the people who heard them said, we hear every man speaking in our own dialect, dialectos in the Greek. They not only were speaking, let's say, English, but they're speaking Southern English. Y'all need to get saved, all right? <laughs> Whatever you got to do. Uh, in fact, Paul talks about, you know, uh, he uses some vernacular that sounds a little bit Southern, too. But also, they were speaking in maybe somebody's Boston accent. They were hearing it in their own dialect. And so it was like the people said, these men are drunk, because they were hearing somebody speak German over here, but they personally did not understand German. And so it made them seem drunk, but the fact was, is people said, no, no, we hear every man speaking in our own dialect. Listen, guys, if you do not get your basics down now, and I'm saying this to an audience in the radio world, too. If you do not get it down now, when this thing breaks forth that we're watching Virgin at the door, you're going to have no clue of where you stand with God. You need God's Word. When this breaks loose, you're going to say, which way's up? And the only way to know which way's up is to read, read, read your Bible. And I can't give you that all at once, but I can tell you there is an understanding to be had. And I'm showing you that here. The Bible says, whether prophecy, only prophesy that which is bound to the Scripture. As I said, this is a noun, not a verb. Prophecy that is bound. See, it's not just saying doing it. He's saying prophecy that is bound to the faith that was delivered unto us. Now, I told you about sign gifts. And I told you, you know, there's healings, raising of the dead. That all happened as a segue, if you will. It was a segue from the Old Testament dispensation to the New Testament dispensation. And somebody I just lost in radio land, they're saying, I hate dispensationalists, they're terrible people. Rain on all that. Get over it. The Bible has different economies. Recognize the word dispensation means house law. There was a house law for Israel. There's a house law for you and me. Our law is the law of love. Their law was the law of Moses. And all of them were to bring us to the same place, to Jesus. God just came at things a little differently in any given economy. In the garden, they had one law. Don't eat of the tree. After they fell, then they had the law of conscience. They blew it. God had to bring a flood. After the flood, they had the law of human government. Whoever sheds man's blood, because there was so much violence, much man, by man his blood be shed. Dispensations are real, folks. Paul said, I've been given a dispensation, okay, to speak to the Gentiles. You and I have a wonderful heritage in our Bible. And rightly dividing the word of truth is essential for navigating these crazy days. So these are segue things getting us here. And by the way, the next dispensation is the kingdom, okay? It's going to be the millennial kingdom. And we're all going to be good, okay? Everybody on this side of the millennium are going to get raptured out, come back, and be glorified, not have any problems with sin anymore, because our natures and our bodies and our minds and hearts and souls will all be completely sanctified and full sanctification. It will be perfected. So, so we have signed gifts. You know what those are. Speaking gifts, prophesying. He mentions whether prophecy. 
And when it talks about prophecy, I want to give you a, a well-regarded preacher, which if you read a lot of the prophets, which you get into Isaiah, you get into Jeremiah, you may not do that because they're long books and you get tired and you don't know all the history. It's hard to read something you don't know, like I did with Plato. I don't even know what this guy's talking about, right? But if you're reading the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah and you don't know any of the names of the kings, you don't know any of the history of Israel, and you don't know, it's like, whoa. So what you do is you soldier through. And along the way, if you do that, and you allow yourself to do that, soldier through, you'll recognize things along the way. Just be content with that. And then go back and soldier through again. Go back and get some more information and then run into it. Because what you have there is you have a real catalog of what God is doing on the large level. For instance, the book of Isaiah gives us a whole panorama of Christ in the Old Testament, Christ in the New Testament, what God was doing with Israel, what he was going to do in the future. There's 39 chapters that are dealing with judgment. There's 27 that are dealing with comfort, just like there's 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. There's so many intricate things. And when you begin to realize God is all about bringing judgment when it has to be brought, but not when it doesn't. He's very patient, long-suffering. He waits till the very nth degree before he pulls the trigger on judgment. Just look at our day to day. <laughs> okay. They're changing little boys into little girls and little girls into little boys. Do anybody think Jesus should show up right now? I mean, I think so, but obviously he knows better than I do. But I don't see much holding him back, and that's what's exciting to me. It could happen any minute. Jesus could come at any time. This is what we're getting into. One world government, all the nonsense that's going on with our economy, our borders open, all of that stuff matters. Because if I look at my Old Testament, I see this is the kind of stuff that happened then. I saw it happen in the Old Testament. I've seen this before. You ever seen somebody say, man, they look like somebody I've seen before? Well, I've seen this before, and I've seen it in the Bible. And this is coming down to it, and Jesus is going to come. But this is what this man says about the word prophecy, and why I say it's so important to understand that prophecy is not always about foretelling. He says it this way. He says, the prominent ideal of prophecy is not prediction, but the inspired delivery of warning, exhortation, instruction, judging, and making manifest the secrets of the heart. But let me read it again. You heard it once. That's how I like to do things. Sometimes I'll go look over something and I'll read it again. He says, the prominent idea of prophecy is not prediction, which is what we think it is. We think prophecy is all about telling the future. But if you read Isaiah and Jeremiah, usually they're just dressing down kings and they're reminding them of what God said in the past. And very few times are they really prophesying. You probably can't even name a prophecy of Elijah. Or maybe you could think about him saying it's not going to rain for three years or whatever. But that'd be about it. He was calling down fire from heaven. He was calling for the heavens to be brass because God said the heavens would be brass if you do this or that. And they were doing this or that. Right? So you understand, prophecy is not about prediction, even though that's fanciful and we like that. This is why we go for the sign gifts. Because, boy, that's fun. I want something I can see. Frankly, the greatest sign of God in this world today is my life. And your life if you know Jesus. He takes a sinner and he makes him a saint. That's a miracle, folks. God takes brands in the fire that are burning and he plucks them out. He quenches them and he turns them into something beautiful. Isn't that great? It's what it's about. If you and I understood how awesome God was, we would live a lot more clean lives. And that's what he's saying. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, it is your reasonable service to present your bodies living sacrifices. And you might put into circulation that which is proving the will of God is good, perfect, and seasonable for you and for me and for everyone else as well. 
The Bible tells us that we have gifts differing one to another and that prophecies are something we need to be mindful of how to do it. This is what Mr. Vincent said again, and he's got a book out called Vincent's Word Pictures. He's very well received. The prominent idea of prophecy is not prediction, but the inspired delivery of warning, exhortation, instruction, judging, and making manifest the secrets of the heart. And that's something. When Jesus was here, he would speak and people would wilt. <laughs> the rich young ruler, what must I do to be saved? And he says, go, you know, keep the law. He says, all these I've done. He says, go and sell all you have. And he wilted. When they brought this woman to him, taken in adultery, they said, he said, what, what should we do with her? She was taken in the very act. They were trying to force his hand. He said, whoever has no sin, he said, let him cast the first stone. And all of them wilted away. And Jesus looked at her as the only one who had no sin. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's our Savior. He says, I'm not here to condemn you. The Bible says, God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but, but through him that they might be saved. The Bible is telling us that prophecy has to be done in a certain way. And it means that you can't be better than, holier than, and so forth if you're Jewish and you're trying to teach some of these Gentiles who could really be advantaged by your instruction. But he tells them they have to do it in a way that literally is bound, proportion, bound to the faith. And that would keep them in line. This is a problem in our day, if you can receive it. Because what happens today now is we've gotten to the place where people go to hear things that they want to hear, not what they need to hear. The Bible says in the book of Second Timothy that in the last days, perilous times would come. You know this passage very intimately because it's easy to preach on. Uh, we like to preach on that one because it makes everybody else look bad and we're so good. But not really. It warns us. It warns us of what's coming. Second Timothy chapter 3 says this, Know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, men shall be proud, boasters, blasphemers, discontent, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, haters of God. They're going to withstand the truth. And that's chapter 3. That's just chapter 3. Chapter 4 says this, Men will then heap teachers to themselves, having itching ears, not willing to endure sound doctrine. So they're going to find people who will tell them what they want to hear. Now, the reason I bring that up is because this is telling us that prophecy has to be bound to the Word of God. Don't look for your best life now. Look for the truth you need right now. Okay? This is a season we're in. It's a very powerful and prophetically relevant season that we're in. And what I can do to you today or any given time we come together, is I can take the scriptures and show you what the Bible says. We did it this morning in Sunday school. We're talking about some of the stuff that's going on. How it is that we aren't anti-Semitic. How we don't believe in replacement theology. How that the Jewish people are on God's docket and they're up next. You know, they're kind of like on deck. Okay, the church is about ready to get out of the batter's box. Then the Israelites are going to come back in. When we're out of the batter's box, we're raptured out of here. That's when we're done. Israel then becomes the one on deck. And God's going to work with them for seven years. And then it, that's all prophetic. But it, what it is, is it's a reflection of where you and I need to be. Why are we where we are? Because we are just like they were. They were so bad that God had to put a blindness over them. And we think we're so good because we're the church, but we're not the church anymore. The church is the church that understands prophecy needs to be tethered to the Word of God. That's how the Word is. And we like it or we don't like it, but it's still God's Word. And let God be true and every man a liar. And so when I come with force, you heard it. 
Warning. Reflections of the heart. You and I are living in these last days. If you don't believe that, if you can't even see it, I know lost people that are talking about God now. And what we have to realize is that as God's people, we need to be able to give an answer to that conversation. Let's speak to it. Let's tell them. This is prophesied. Get to know your Bible better. You know, you could, you could have a certain gun, not even know how to get the safety off of that thing. This is your weapon. Oil that baby up, sharpen the sword, get ready, because somebody's going to say something about something going on, and you'll be able to tell them a verse and a chapter, not just your mind about it. But he says it's got to be according to the proportion of faith, analog. It's got to be analog. It's got to be up and spoken from the faith. That's what Emma means, up and spoken to the faith. Okay, it's speaking from the faith, the faith that's been given to us. Jesus gave us a body of truth. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I live, I live by the faith, the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the faith. He gave us a body of truth. And we're like, okay, I get it. I've heard the Bible stories. Get in there and learn it, because it's yours. It's your heritage. And it's what you will be able to grab hold of when the rains begin to pour. I don't know how long the Lord's going to let us go into this thing, but it's getting pretty goofy. Things people didn't think we'd ever be here for are happening. One world government stuff. I mean, we are seeing Nimrod's dream come into its own. Israel's on the verge of World War III, and people are acting like, hey, what's for dinner? What's on TV tonight? We're looking at a time where in the days of Noah and the days they were married, giving in marriage, as if nothing was going on can't be for you and me. We are not in the dark that that day should overtake us as a thief in the night. The Bible says, have them prophesy according to the proportion of faith. And it says, or ministry. Now I'm going to move on. I have much more to say about that. But I don't want to wear you out on one thing, but here we have now ministry. Ministry is evidently a gift. He's given us prophecy. He's given us ministry. He talks about teaching. He talks about giving. He talks about ruling. And he talks about mercy. Those are the gifts he talks about in the next couple of verses. So he's talking about ministry now, a gift of ministry. Ministry is a concept of being like a deacon. It's being a deacon before you ever get asked to be a deacon. It's running around doing everything you can to undergird and uphold the family and the, and the promise and the, and, the, and the pillar and ground of the truth, which is the church. You do everything you can to lift up and make it successful. Guys, listen. When I got saved, I was 17 years old. I was 16 years old. Sixteen years old, had long hair, sat on the second verse, second chair. That's back when I had hair. I get it. I get it. You say, yeah, long hair. How can you? No, it, I had hair, and it was brown, and it was really lovely. And anyway, so I'm sitting on the second thing, and I'm there on Wednesday night, and I'm there on Sunday morning, and I'm in church, and I'm going to church every time the doors are open, and I'm involved in Bible school. I didn't know anything. They gave me a Sunday school year teaching. I was panicking. Sounds real, doesn't it? What are we doing? Are we doing everything we can to help the kingdom? Are we doing everything we can to encourage the church? Because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It is the plan of God. It is not optional. It's not something we ought to think about, well, should I or shouldn't I? He says, do it. He said, I will build my church. Not only will he build it with bodies, he will build the bodies in that church. He will build them. He will make them members one of another. We live in a day right now where it's very difficult to have a, a really fully experienced New Testament church. And the reason is because we have a car and we have gift polarization. 
And what that means is everybody who likes evangelism will go to the church that does evangelism. Everybody who likes deep teaching will go to the church that teaches deeply. Everybody who loves the, the, the last days things will go where the last days are talked about. And, and everybody's all segmented. It's polarization. It cripples the church. The devil is a great divider. He's doing it now everywhere, but he's been doing it for a long time in the church. And so you have people who, who, who really enjoy a lot of music, and you got other people who say, I don't want any music, and so suddenly it's like this, this polarization. Just understand that. This is a concept you have to get your mind around, because he's talking to us about different gifts. And some people have the gift of getting under. The word literally has the idea of kicking up the dust. So on ministry... Okay, and the word on is the idea of is in ministry, not on ministry. Uh, okay, it's the idea of in. It's it's a Greek word that means in. Okay, in other words, when I say prophecy tethered to the word of God and ministry, just get busy. That's what he's saying. Just do it. Don't be looking at everybody and saying, yeah, but those people and then because that's what they had. Jews and Gentiles. So he's got the Jews who they need to just tether their whatever they have to say to the word of the faith. And he's got the Gentiles who need to just get busy. Stop worrying about what they said. Just love on them and laugh at them. And, you know, uh, it's sort of like watching a, um, a depiction of what happened with the Alka Indians. You know, those people uh, who killed uh, Jim Elliott back in the day, back in the 50s, right? You guys remember that whole story, right? The Great Gates of Splendor movie and all that. Well, what's interesting is they have these people who, uh, who, are, who, are, who are natives that were once cannibals and savages or whatever. They were, they were killers. They killed the, the men, the, the missionaries. The wives all went in with their children and they want them to Jesus and several years later they're coming to America and they're laughing and giggling and they don't even understand you're in my drama. You know, we, we're like, I'm so sad. I got nothing going on. They're like, yeah, I know why you're fat. You don't even have to walk on the sidewalk because the sidewalk moves. They're in an airport. They're just laughing about what, what this is crazy. You don't have to pay for your food. All the things that they said, because they looked to them like you gave a card and they took it and they gave it back to you. So you didn't really have to pay. They just laughed. And my point is this, is as a Gentile, they were so excited. Their best, best plan of action is to get excited and just go in there and do what you can to help. How can I help? Can I set the tables up? Can I set the chairs out? Can I put the Bibles out? And can I put the hymnals out? You see, he says the best way for you to cope is just get busy. You'll grow. Just listen. And he's telling, them, uh, he's telling them that that's a good plan of action for them. When you look at the word teach now, you have a, a concept before you now that is getting into something a little bit more uh, verbal, if you will, the verbs, okay, where he says, uh, and, and he says, or he that teacheth. Now you're getting into some verbs, okay? So he had two nouns. Now he's, he just cataloged them as overarching. And now he says, uh, he says, he that teacheth on teaching. Or by teaching. Again, on is, a, is the, 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 um, the concept is by teaching. He that teacheth by teaching. Or he that exhorteth by exhortation. Or he that giveth with simplicity. And he that ruleth. All of these now are verbs. Okay? That's important. I know it doesn't seem like it, but when you read it next time, if you remind yourself to look at it that way, it will help you understand the flow of the passage. It says, he that teacheth on teaching. Now, it has been said by some that uh, the gift of teaching is basically made up of a, um, uh, uh, let me put it this way, that the best teachers are many times people who are encouragers by their giftings. But he makes a distinction here that in the body there's going to be teaching going on and there's going to be exhorting. Or exhorting. So those two things are really 
basically not mutually exclusive, but they are mutually exclusive, okay? They work together because basically this, Jesus had all the gifts. We are made to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So eventually you're going to cultivate some gifts that weren't natural for you at first. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. That's what it means to get gifts. When we were made to drink of one spirit, we were given gifts of the spirit, a gift of the spirit, maybe more than one. Okay, so we were all made to drink of one spirit. I want you to know this too, because context makes all the difference. People think that only the super spiritual get the gifts. Like they talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit as being a separate work of grace. The Bible is talking in that passage, we were all baptized by one spirit. He said that to the Corinthians. It was the worst church in the New Testament. They weren't the best church, they were the worst one. They were just messing up with all their gifts. And he said, you, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So they all were baptized into, the, in, into Christ. So don't be standing around waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not that you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit if you're saved. It's just you need to recognize what's already happened and stop contemplating your own universe as if it's the most important thing in the world. God saves us, and we get saved by truth. The truth shall set you free. And when you get set free, then you begin to cooperate with that by getting under the teaching of the Word of God. The Bible says that the pastors need to be, you know, several things, but one of the things, they need to be apt to teach. So what I'm getting at, circling back, is that some people have said that teaching, people who really have the gift of teaching are the ones who write our books. And they sometimes are very hard to listen to because they're very cerebral. So that's our world trying to make it like a corporation, and this guy's got that ability, and that guy's got that ability. No, no. Now, they may write books, but if that's all they do, like I know a guy, I could name his name, you'd probably recognize it, many of you, because he was around forever, he's written study Bibles. He was a great writer of great topics, and he was very clear and everything. When you hear him talk, he'd be, as, he'd be like little Mr. Peabody, and he'd be going in the just one word, and it was always in the same monotone. He put you to sleep in a heartbeat. But he also was divorced. And he was teaching in a, in a seminary, one of the biggest named seminaries. My point is this. He didn't teach very well with his life, did he? You see, a man who is going to be a pastor has to be the husband of one wife, a one-man woman, or a one-woman one man. And, and he's supposed to be have his family in order and rule his family beautifully. Halas, beautifully. This man was a teacher, but he was also compromised. I say that because you need to recognize the way that you're being taught today is based on American ideas, based upon corporate ideas. The body of Christ is he's the head. We are the members of the body. If we grow up into the head, we're going to do it the way he wants us to. We're going to do our prophesying tethered to the faith. We're going to do our ministry to facilitate the growth of the body. And we're going to do our teaching as we, uh, as we teach, we will be fed personally. That's what he's telling them. Let him who has the gift of teaching be teaching. He already told the prophesy side of it, but he's saying be teaching. And he says, he that exhorteth. And this is the Greek word, parakaleo. It's the same word used for this, the, uh, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, uh, and it's translated comforter. The word for exhorting has the idea of para, bringing, and calling. Calling someone alongside. The Holy Spirit comes alongside. Parakletus. He's the one who comes alongside. 
we get the word call from kaleo. It's paracletus. Now, this is important because as we get older women, we get younger women. And older women have to teach the younger women, and that can't be done at a distance or in a text. It's got to be putting your arm around them, putting them around your table, having a conversation, telling your story, telling them how you came along, what you failed at, and what you succeeded at. Men, older men, younger men. I had a chance to sit with a young man recently, talking to him. He knows what's going on. It was the whole thing I told you about. The world we're living in. He knows it's going crazy. What did we talk about? How important his family is. Do you have any kids? I have one. He said, I just want to get it right. Are you in church? No, I'm not. Do you know much about the Bible? No, I don't. I gave him a tract after I got done because I couldn't go fully with it because it we were on a clock. But I was telling him, you need to get right with God. You know what I did? I took him to my, my phone. I showed him Tim Tebow on my website. I showed him Tim Tebow and the 316 thing, all the things that happened with him on 316. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look up my name on YouTube. It's the first thing that comes up. It starts playing right out of the gate. It shows everything miraculous that happened with Tim Tebow when he played a certain game against the Patriots, I think. Uh, and what he did, they won. He ran three, 316 yards. He rushed for 316 yards. He played 316, all the 16. And 94 million people Googled 316. And this man's just oblivious to all of it until he's getting ready to go out and see the press. And he says, you don't know what happened. My point is, is I gave him that, gave him a miracle of what God can do. You can give miracles of what he's done for you. I can give my testimony, give him a miracle. But this guy, then... I said, you've got to get your kids ready for war. They're out there trying to kill your kids. You don't have any problem with that. They're trying to kill your family, kill your kids, break you up. And he saw it. And I've got, I get to see him this next week. Hopefully I'll see him and he'll say, yeah, I did read that track every day so far. I've got seven days. I've got a couple more days. Guys, listen, this is what we're here for. We're here to get that gospel out. And I was teaching him. Younger man, older man, right? Older men teach the younger. Older women teach the younger. Do you know where these clothes are coming from? that are coming in our world today with the girls' clothes? The older women aren't teaching the younger ones. They're not having the conversation. It's got to be done. So, if you... Here's the thing. I know that most of us are past that. But you've got a daughter who can tell. Their daughter. Still. See? you got to tell them, honey. you got to tell them. Okay? And you got to put your foot down, fellas. You know better than they do what's wrong with those clothes. Right? So you and I have to be people who tell our wives, tell our kids, tell our wives to tell our girls not to embarrass, but because the world is on fire and you are the only place of safety and harbor of rest and you have to be there getting it done. The Bible says, he that exhorteth. So he should, he should be exhorting. He should be the comforter. He should be running around bringing people along. If he sees something a little skew, encourage, encourage, encourage. The word means comfort. It means encourage. It means to beg somebody to come. Like the man who was a soldier, uh, a man who had a, a centurion who had a soldier, and he said, my, my man is sick. He, he besought Jesus to come. He, he paracoletoed him. Please, please come. Uh, that's what he's doing. He's, we need to call people along. If your gift is exhortation. Some people don't have that gift. <laughs> and sometimes they say thing, everything that comes out comes out hard or harsh. You've got you to do something else because that's not your thing. Let somebody else take care of that. He that giveth with simplicity. Underline the word simplicity. The literally, the word means singularity. In other words, only have one thing in mind. They don't have 15 things in mind. Some people who give, they tend to have a... Because they have much, they think everybody's after it and they get a little bit suspicious and they raise an eyebrow when they give. And they're wanting to know exactly where everything's going. 
That's not how God wants us to give. He wants you to give with singularity. You just give. And the Greek word for this is the word haplites, and it has the idea of singleness of mind. And the idea is tethered to the idea of hilarity. Do you remember in uh, 2 Corinthians where it says, I want to tell you about the grace that was given to the people of Macedonia? He says in that whole discourse, he says, God loves a cheerful giver, because he's going to use that word down here uh, in cheerfulness. The idea of hilarity with giving. Uh, hilariously, cheerfully. But how do you do that? The only way you can give hilariously is, one, you don't have any money, and two cents seems like awful. It makes you laugh because you only have two cents of a tithe. But uh, the other side is, is that you have this idea of, I just am giving to God. I'm not giving to anything but God. I'm giving to God. I'm giving in such a way as to make sure that I have one thing in my mind, the furtherance of the kingdom. I've had times where I've had to change my giving when something came to my attention. I've given to somebody, and I've thought, I've even brought in a missionary back in Pennsylvania, and it was a great ministry, but it turned out he had some doctrinal problems. And I was like, oh. So I had to walk it back a little bit. My point is, is you just don't do that. You just give if you feel God moving you to give. But then when it comes to your attention, if it's something serious, then you might have to make a second. But don't go in it with the, trying to figure out everything. You may have gotten all your gains because you're shrewd and you know how to do things. Rain on trying to be shrewd about everything. Just love Jesus. Amen? Just love Jesus. Just give to God. Give to His causes. Give to the ones that make your heart sing. And sometimes you'll give to something that is just perfect, and it's exactly what you wish the world was like, and it maybe turns out a little awry. Okay, just, you know, write a nice note and say things have changed, and I'm going to move on to this other and give to something else. That's okay, but just don't let it crimp your style. Don't let it make you mad. Don't let it, you know, stay fired up for Jesus. You're giving. You're laying up treasure. Treasures for heaven. Okay, that's what you're doing. You're sending it on ahead. The Bible says, Him that giveth, let him give with simplicity, singleness. He that ruleth. And you think about ruling, you think, well, is that an administrator? No, it literally has the idea of, it's the Greek word pro, which means before, and histemi, which means to stand. You've heard of an antihistamine? Antihistamine, that's the, you put this in and it stands against. Okay, it's to stand against, it's to take on the, I guess, Something else comes at you, the viruses or whatever. But the idea is to stand against. But this is prohistamine, it's stand before. I'm the one that rules here. Not that I'm ruling. The Greek word means to stand before you. I stand before you. He says, he that stands before others, let him do it with diligence. Do you feel like I'm diligent here? <laughs> it's just really earnest to get to see what I feel and think and how I look at things. This is what he's telling us to do. He says, the guy who stands before you, when he stands before you, may he do it with diligence. Kind of reminds us in Second Peter where he says, let those in your midst there in, in the congregation that is dispersed, he says, let him take the oversight of the church, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for filthy lucre's sake, but in simplicity. You see, the whole concept is that the one who rules is the one who stands before because he's like a rudder of a ship. He teaches, he leads, he just stands there and he speaks and he needs to do it with diligence. And, of course, the idea uh, of diligence has, has its own word connected to it. He that ruleth, can't find it, there it is. With diligence is a word means with speed, <laughs> interestingly enough, because after that he's going to talk about not being slothful in business. So moving on, he says, do it with diligence. He says, uh, and he that showeth mercy, let him do it with cheerfulness. Now, if you are a caregiver in some measure or have been for a season, 
you might understand why he would say, he that showeth mercy, let him do it with cheerfulness. Right? You walk it through. Yeah. Easy to get morose when you're caring for somebody. Easy to get bummed out. Can I just tell you a little something that when it's hardest, the Bible says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Remember that? That's when they wanted to kill him. While they were away doing some conquests, they came back and their families and all their stuff had been taken. And the other guys are saying, where's my wife? What have we done? What did you, you led us, where are my kids? They're still in. The Bible says David comforted himself or strengthened himself in the Lord. You can do that. Cheerfulness can be found by being filled with the Spirit. And you have complete control of whether you're filled with the Spirit or not. The Bible says, be filled with the Spirit. And it literally reads, be being filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit wants to fill you. It's just you kind of quench or grieve the Spirit by ignoring whatever He's trying to do, get inside your life a little bit. But you can be being filled by this, by speaking to one another, like speaking to that person you're caring for, and singing and making melody in your heart. You can pick up some, some oh, I say it again, hymns. You can sing some hymns. Because I can't say, you can sing some hymns. You don't need to belt out, you know, how great thou art and sing on the top of the mountains with all of the nuances of the word. It's just get something easy. Jesus loves me. This I know. Most profound thing I ever learned. How about you? Okay, that works. If it's the only song you know, we sang this morning, What a Day That Will Be. That got me through college. I was as lonely as a lost ball in high weeds. I didn't know what I was doing there. I had gotten a haircut and went to Christian college. I knew no hymns. None. But you know why I knew what the day that will be? You know why I knew that song? Because the first time I sang it, it so resonated with my heart that I sang it again and again and again. And eventually I knew all the words. Because it was so what I was looking for. I was in a speech class one time. They're going around the room and they're saying, what do you look for more than anything else? I'm, like, I'm going to school and I'm going to get married. And I can't, they came to me and I said, I, work, I look forward to getting dead. I would look forward to dying. They're all looking at me. I'm sitting by a Jehovah's Witness who believes that's annihilation. What? I said, I look forward to dying. I say, why? Well, okay, you know, the teacher's trying to be gracious. I say, no, really, because I get to go to heaven. That was my enthusiasm at the moment. I get to go to heaven. So when I heard, what a day that will be, when my Jesus I shall see, sign me up. I'm in college, I'm walking through. What am I? Don't forget my point. You can strengthen yourself. You don't have to be morose. You can be cheerful. Find the song. We all have a song, maybe, that really resonates with us. Our song. With Jesus. Singing and making melody in our hearts. You don't even have to sing it out loud. Hum, hum, meditate, ruminate. Singing and making melody in our hearts unto the Lord, which is personal. It's a relationship. Now you're tethered. Now the Holy Spirit can flow. I'm trying to show you. He's talking about one body. He's trying to tell us about simplicity and cheerfulness. And he says in verse 9, it says, let love be without dissimulation. You see the word let? It's not there. It's not there. It's in the italics. You pull it out. Love. And there's no be there either in the Greek. In the Greek, it's literally saying like a, a summary statement. It's like he's saying unhypocritical love. That's what he's saying. Unhypocritical love. Without dissimulation is literally an adjective. And then love is a noun. Unhypocritical love. That's what he's saying. That's what we need. We need unhypocritical love in our churches. Just serve. Just speak. Just get under. Just do what you can. Because that's what makes the church the church. By our love, 
the world will know that we are his disciples. Then he gets a little proactive. He's out of the gifts now. And he moves on and he talks about some of the mandates or some of the ways that we can kind of soldier on down here. He says, abhor that which is evil. The Bible says, to love God is to hate evil. But here we have this thing that says, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. This is how you displace it. If you cleave to what's good, then what's evil will be abhorrent, right? Um, For instance, if you love your baby, if you really love your baby, then everything that is involved in this Planned Parenthood-soaked world will be abhorrent to you. So we have to be mindful that when we cling to that which is good, we're going to hate what's evil because what's evil is always trying to pull us away from that which is good. So it's just a thing where he's telling us, this is how you do your life. And again, Jews, Gentiles, everybody just get on the same page. He says, just abhor that which is evil, cling to that which is good. And the word here is that which is essentially good. Be kindly affectionate to one another. We've talked about this before. Philostorgos. It's the idea of the yearning of a mama bird taking food, loving its young kind of thing. It's natural, instinctual love. He says, be instinctively loving the body of Christ with Philadelphian love. Okay, so love, love. Both of them's got the idea of phileo, love, in verse 10. It says, in honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit. And the idea of fervent is a word we get the word zeal from. It means hot. You remember Jesus said, I would that you be either hot or cold, but because you're neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. People says, what does that mean? Well, what that means is it's talking to the Laodicean church, and the Laodicean church is the last stage of the church age where the people tell the preachers what they want and they give it to them. And he says, you don't know that you're poor, wretched, naked, and blind. You think you're rich and increased with good and have need of nothing. He says, but you're neither hot nor cold. You've got nothing. You've got nothing that matters. There's nothing real there. You're not hot or cold. He says, and because you're not hot or cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. And what it literally means is it means there are people in a church today who think they're saved and they're not. And the spewing is they're in church and they're going to run right into the tribulation because the rapture is going to happen they're going to be left behind. You see, the church is the body of Christ. But inside the church... The ravens and the birds of the air came in and joined us a while back. Okay, so now they've infiltrated the church. So a lot of the church is made up of lost people. Just make sure you're not one of those, okay? Bible says that we're supposed to be fervent in spirit, hot in spirit, serving the Lord. And you know what serving the Lord is? It's serving other people. You serve other people. By serving the Lord, you serve other people. That's what you're doing. That's the way he does. Why? Because it's what he did. Think about it. He's got people he cares about that he knows need to be saved and people who are saved that need some encouragement. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. What an amazing word that is because in this world that's hard, there's hope that gets us above it, brings us up above it. Rejoicing in hope. Continuing instant in prayer. That's an interesting word in its own right. Continuing instant in prayer. The idea of continuing instant is the idea of having power and force. And you remember where the Bible says, to as many as received Christ, he gave the right to become the children of God? The word there, gave the right, is gave the force, gave the power to become the children of God. Okay, 
And this is what he's saying here. You get power from being instant in prayer. Constantly taking those things that stumble you as a believer and as an individual. Distributing to the necessities of the faith and given to hospitality. Now there again we have another one of those words that is, is needing a little explanation. The word for given to is the word dioko. It's actually the root word of diakonia, which we talked about a minute ago. It means to be eager and kick up the dust. Be quick to be hospitable. Wherever you can be hospitable, be quick to do that. And in verse 14, Bless them that persecute you and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things. And that's where he brings it down. And we did this last week. I went back to get the center of the sandwich. Okay, Basically, what we see here is he told them, you're supposed to give your lives as a living sacrifice. You're supposed to prove to the world what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you're supposed to be transformed and all of that and stop being high-minded. Don't think more highly of yourself and all of that. And now he comes back to that because this is all in the center there. How can I not be high-minded? I know more than this guy does. I'm a Jew. He's a Gentile. Because you're going to show mercy. You're going to be hospitable. You're going to bring him into your house. You remember when Jesus was asked to go to the publican's house and he went? Everybody's like, oh. That's the way Jews lived. And sometimes that's the way we live. I had a gal years ago that was at Target. I would see her once in a while. I don't go to Target anymore. I don't go to Target anymore. Just saying, because they got weird things. But... Um, I, I just, I don't go to Target anymore. But I used to go. And this one girl, I saw her a few times, and I asked her if she wanted to come over to my house, meet my wife for lunch. And she did. We got to share Jesus with her. I don't remember the full unfolding of all that. I believe she got saved, but I can't say for sure. But my point is, is that that was somebody who I might not have otherwise been hospitable to, but now that I've had a conversation, they're, they're close to the house, and they get off work, they can come over. That works. We've had a couple times where we've done that. Guys, listen, we have to be these people. This is us. This is our heritage. This is our pedigree. It can't be all about us four and no more. It can't be just about mine and my own. Okay, we need to be charging the gates of hell. We need to break through. The gates of hell won't prevail against us. Man, we can go in and get them. We can go in and get them. And that's the telic principle. That's the overarching principle of everything Paul's saying. Be of the same mind, verse 16. Be not wise in your own conceits. Why? Because the Gentiles and the Jews, you know, everybody's got a thing and they get mad at each other. Sour grapes. And when he comes down, he says, Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide the things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, live peaceably with all men. The chapter division would be best right here, so we're going to let it be for us, our chapter division, because he's going to start, start talking about things that have to do with criminal and civil law, things like that, powers to be. But for you and me, let's take it for a minute and recap for our hearts. He told us what we're supposed to be up to this point, chapter 12. It was the first time he's dealt with the issue of your practical outworking of your salvation. Everything's been doctrine all the way to chapter 11. After chapter 11, it now is all duty. What should we be doing? You will not be able to do this unless you understand the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. If you understand what Jesus has done for you, if you understand how much He loved you, if you understand what price He paid, if you understood what He had hopes for you, wants for you, desires for you, if you understand that He made it possible for you to fly 
understand that you, He's made it possible for you to sing. He made it possible for you to win. He made it possible for you to lay up treasure. He made it possible for you to witness. He made it possible for you to save your loved ones, your wife, your kids, your children, your grandchildren. He made it possible. Because even when you fall, the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked fall into mischief. He made it possible. And so don't let any one given moment and any stumble or bumble or whatever, don't let it stop you. Don't let any person stop you. Be on fire as much as you can. Stoke that fire and come up to the bar and start pulling on this cart we're pulling. You know, the ship of Zion maybe is stuck in the mud a little bit, but we're going to try to get it out, whatever we can do. Because God would have it. So, would you bow with me for a moment?